This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I am your host, Davey Crockett. This is episode 17. In this episode, I will introduce the history of 1,000 milers. That's crazy. Yes, it is. I don't even like driving that far. In 1985, America's first modern-day 1,000-mile race was held in Flushing Meadows Corona Park in Queens, New York, with three finishers. The 1986 race was probably the most famous modern-day 1,000-mile race held, with showdowns of several of the world greats. But most ultra-runners have never heard about 1,000-mile races. 1,000-mile attempts in one go have taken place for more than two centuries. A curious 1,000-mile frenzy took place for about 10 years in England during the early 1800s by professional walkers. They took on huge wagers, making those who succeeded very wealthy men. These 1,000-mile events attracted thousands of curious spectators who also wagered and spent much of their money at the sponsoring pubs during the multi-week events. This will be a three-part series on 1,000-milers. Two main formats for these 1,000 milers took place during the early 1800s. In this episode, the stories will be told about walking 1,000 miles as fast as pedestrians could to reach the distance within a certain number of days to win the wagers. They were not really interested in achieving best times. They were simply interested in reaching 1,000 miles in time to win the wager and gain lots of money donated by spectators. Massive amounts of money changed hands and bets. In episode 18, stories even more famous will be told about reaching 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours, an effort commonly called the Barkley Match. With this format, the pedestrians were required to walk a mile during every successive hour, a strange battle to establish bizarre sleep patterns for nearly 42 days. Episode 19 will include the modern-day 1,000-mile races. Running or walking the 1,000-mile distance in an event has taken place for more than 250 years. The earliest known 1,000-miler was attempted in 1759 by George Guest, a wagoneer from Warwickshire, England. At Birmingham, England, for a considerable wager, Guest attempted a walk of 1,000 miles in 28 days. His course was in an open area about two miles from Birmingham. He only walked 31 miles the first day, but from then on stayed on schedule. Halfway through, on day 14, he was back on schedule at mile 490. It was reported, quote, He is perfectly well, and it is thought he will perform the whole in the time. By day 21, he had walked 720 miles. With two days to go, Guest still had 106 more miles to go. He was feeling fine, and to show off a bit, quote, he walked the last six miles within an hour, though he had a full six hours in which to complete his task. He finished on February 1st, 1759. George Wilson of England was born in 1766. He was one of the pioneers of pedestrianism and would become known as the Blackheath Pedestrian. In his 40s, he had a cloth and clothing business that required him to visit London on occasion. He walked there and back about 550 miles in 12 days. He once worked for a publisher writing a map book about Great Britain. Wilson would travel by foot for miles with a measuring wheel to verify the distance between various points and routes listed in the book. With his endurance walking skills, 
Wilson, a small man, only five foot four, started to look for long-distance walking wagers. His first one involved walking the 84-mile length of the historic Roman Hadrian's Wall within 24 hours. In 1814, he fell on hard times as his marriage was breaking up and he couldn't pay a 20-pound debt to his uncle. He was thrown into debtor's prison. While imprisoned, he continued his ultra-walking ways, walking 50 miles in 12 hours in a small prison area, 11 by 8 yards. He made 9,026 turns. He won a wager of 5 guineas, 1 shilling, which helped him get out of prison. On September 11, 1815, at the age of 50, Wilson tried to accomplish walking 1,000 miles in 20 days, and it turned out to be one of the strangest and most famous stories in early pedestrianism. His walking course was a one-mile triangle near the Hare and Billet pub at Blackheath, about eight miles east of London. Rules for his walk specified that he must reach 50 miles in each of his 24-hour periods. The landlord of Hare and Billet agreed to feed and lodge Wilson, but after the second night he moved out because the pub was just too noisy and he needed to sleep, so he was taken to a nearby home each night. On day five, Wilson was on schedule, but it was very hot and the dust was quite annoying. Wilson's feet were dreadfully blistered. The next day, he walked in good spirits. At times, he was interfered by some of the rowdy spectators who were betting against him. After finishing his 50th mile that day, and around 11 p.m., he was carried home amidst the cheers of his friends. Halfway through, on the 10th day, Wilson had sore feet, but doing well with a 16-minute mile pace. He took stops every four miles. Curious crowds had grown to about 7,000 people. The dust kicked up by the crowds affected his breathing. He had asked that his route be roped off to give him protection from the pressure of the crowd, but that was impossible. The area was a complete scene of riot and confusion. Some rich men who were betting in favor of him published handbills for the crowds that included, give him room, keep back, George Wilson, the pedestrian, most earnestly entreats the spectators to keep a greater distance so as to allow him sufficient space to walk with ease and have the benefit of the air. On the 11th day, the betting odds were against him. A couple of disgruntled bettors tried to attack him and he fought back with his fist. His assaulter tried to get Wilson arrested. Previously, two pretended friends had given him a drink on a hot day. Soon afterward, his stomach became ill, and it was determined that they had tried to poison him. As if walking 1,000 miles wasn't hard enough, he had to face daily stress from all these people who wanted him to fail. Men with bayonets were sent out to clear his path. With the huge crowds, the pub was doing amazing business. They sold 1,296 quarts of beer in one day. The Tartar Fair was well established near the pub and had put up many tents in large booths with magicians and alcohol. A theater came to put up attractions but was stopped by the property owner, but some circus acts were approved, including a trapeze. 
Oh, also an elephant sat in front of the pub. Every time Wilson completed a lap, a roar would come from the crowd. It was an amazing spectacle. The nearby roads were the scene of terrific confusion. The road to London was blocked up with all types of horse-drawn vehicles. There were collisions between carriages, stagecoaches, carts, donkeys, and horses. Vehicles were, quote, pressed forward with an unwise impatience amidst the general crush. Friends and foes seemed to have forgotten all the usual courtesies of good manners. Local authorities were not pleased with reports of drunkenness, prostitution, and riotous acts. On the twelfth day, alcohol was banned outside the pub and the booths were cleared. On the thirteenth day, a warrant for Wilson's arrest was issued but not yet executed. On day fourteen, the authorities would not allow him to walk in their town on Sunday, so he was taken to a park in a nearby town where a half mile out and back was measured off. Back in Blackheath, there was great confusion as horse-drawn carriages were going in all directions in search of Wilson. Heavy rain fell and he only completed 32 miles before midnight. Torches and lanterns were used to light his way. He continued on through the night and reached 50 miles by 5 a.m. On day 15, just after a few hours of sleep, he was under evident marks of depression of spirits and greatly bodily fatigue. He made a statement at the day's start. In having accomplished so much of my task, I have done as much, 700 miles, as any pedestrian who has preceded me in the same time. And I am about now to commence 300 more miles, which I hope I shall be permitted to perform without molestation. I sincerely hope the magistrates of the county will not feel it necessary to disturb me. He completed his 750th mile that day. After just one mile on the 16th day, it was rumored that a posse of constables were on the way to arrest Wilson. His friends took him off the course to the home he was staying at, but eventually the authorities showed up and he was placed under house arrest. The charge was for disturbing the peace with, quote, a very tumultuous assemblage of people from the surrounding and other parishes and occasioning a considerable interruption to the peace of the inhabitants. Wilson was disappointed but gracious, addressing his friends and supporters with thanks, and then was taken to bed where he slept all day. A hearing was held days later, but eventually Wilson was discharged and conducted home in triumph, decorated with ribbons and accompanied by shouts of the multitude. But the damage was done. It had been nine days since his walk was interrupted. A public collection was taken and he still received his 1,000 guineas. Despite Wilson's failure to finish 1,000 miles because of interference, other pedestrians and innkeepers noticed that it had been an enormously successful, profitable event. Plans were immediately put in place to mimic Wilson's event to achieve 1,000 miles in 20 days. Just a month later, in October 1815, William Tuffy, aged 35, a laborer with a wife and five children, started his copycat walk in the town of Rochester, Kent, England, about 30 miles east of London. 
The spot for the walk was Cossack Field, where a 220-yard roped-off out-and-back grass course was constructed in a hollow of a hill beside Cossack Pub. Before holding the event, they made sure that it was supported by the local magistrates so they wouldn't have to have the same difficulties that Wilson experienced. Tuffy agreed to attempt to reach 1,000 miles in 21 days, and bets were against him succeeding. For his event, it did not matter how many miles he walked each day, he just needed to reach 1,000 miles in 21 days. Early on, all went well and Tuffy stayed right on schedule. Tuffy walked with two canes in his hands and stayed very upright and did not, quote, ramble as Wilson did. On day seven, crowds started to grow. A news article stated, quote, Rochester exhibited a greater scene of bustle than has been remembered for a considerable length of time, by person, some in carriages, some on horseback, and others on foot arriving in all directions to view the performance of Tuffy, whose Herculean task is now the general topic of conversation. Some rowdy members of the crowd threw impediments into his path. He received bruises to his leg, causing him considerable pain. It was reported that the crowd was loud, given to shouting and singing to such an extent that Tuffy, who had been staying at the Cossack Inn, had to repair to his own home some small distance away as they were disturbing his rest. On Tuffy's ninth day, his right knee was very painful. Ugh. He recovered well on day 11. He used a good deal of tobacco that day. He was asked how he felt and replied, never better. The rain poured on day 12, and at night Tuffy wore a huge coat with a pair of boots that had large nails in the bottom so he wouldn't slip. He held an umbrella and trudged along at about 3.5 miles per hour. His feet were soaked and bad blisters formed. He finished that day with 534 miles. He was about 36 miles behind schedule, but he was confident that the knee pain would stay away. Unfortunately, on day 13, Tuffy quit after going 553 miles. The course was in terrible shape. It clearly bothered Tuffy to fail at his 1,000-mile quest, so just about a month and a half later in December, he participated in a new stunt, a 1,200-mile relay with his 12-year-old son. When he rested, his son could continue to keep the mileage ticking up. They succeeded and reached 1,200 miles on the 20th day. The boy covered 502 of those miles. The promoters of Tuffy's attempt were very savvy. If Tuffy didn't finish, they had John Baker waiting in the wings to replace him and thus keep the spectators coming. Once Tuffy quit... Baker was to start his 1,000-mile 21-day walk just three days later on the same course in Rochester. Baker, a Rochester native, was 33 years old and was very used to training, quote, through the most dreary parts of Kent. It was rumored that Baker gained his stamina while smuggling goods for long distances. Because of the troubles that Tuffy had experienced with the rowdies who wanted him to fail, the mayor of Rochester sent assurances to Baker that he would receive officer protection during his walk, making sure no one tried to interfere his attempt. The one requirement was that Baker didn't run between 10 a.m. and noon on Sundays during church services. 
The next morning, Baker came to the start, accompanied by members of the Cossack Cricket Club, all who loudly cheered him. He wore an overcoat, several waistcoats, thick three-pound half-boots, and a common round hat. His friends wanted him to wear shoes, but Baker insisted to walk in his favorite boots. It was reported, quote, He carries in his hand a tick hazel stick, which he swings as he walks along. His first day went well. He had a plain diet of wine and beef tea and reached about 60 miles, maintaining a pace of about 15-minute miles. As the days went on, Baker became concerned that some strangers were trying to be friends with him and had gained access to the room that he would use to rest. One had tried hard to get him to accept some pills, which Baker refused. The committee over the event feared that someone might try poisoning Baker and ordered a sign to be put on Baker's door that no person whatsoever during his match of his shall be permitted therein except themselves and his known friends. By day nine, Baker had reached 465 miles. His diet mainly consisted of coffee for breakfast and beef steaks at lunch with beer or wine. He had tea in the afternoon and for supper again beef steak or mutton chops. That is a lot of protein. He still preferred walking in his favorite boots and his feet were holding up just fine. Bets were coming in on all sides. Each day, spectators would present him with money as he walked along. As he took breaks in his room, Baker would often hum his favorite song, which was within a mile of Edinburgh town. On one day, Baker was offered bribes to quit, including a very large one for 100 guineas. He scornfully rejected such offers. On the 14th day, the weather was more tempestuous than the oldest settlers could ever remember. Baker started out at 4 a.m. in a terrible storm accompanied by attendants with lanterns, but it was so muddy that he and his pacers gave up after a few laps. He tried again at 6 a.m., but again gave up after five miles until the storm passed. The ground had been so slippery that to attempt to get on, he could not. At 9 a.m., he finally could continue, but by afternoon, he had traveled only 17 miles. That day in town, several windows were blown in and chimneys were down. Most of the tents pitched at the Cossack was totally leveled except for a grandstand tent. A large wagon carrying an eight-ton elephant was moved to higher ground. On day 16, he reached 770 miles. On day 19, when Baker was on his 50th mile for the day, a fiddler came upon the course and accompanied him, playing some lively airs which seemed to volatize his animation, for he intended to finish that 50th mile, but at the end of it, he, to the astonishment of everyone, danced a jig and said he would add another tick, top of the clerk's score. He walked the next mile in less than 14 minutes. As he was leaving the ground, he turned back to the course and said, I'll walk another mile merely for recreation. He did another 13-minute mile and then danced the hornpipe dance. On his 20th day, he really wanted to reach the 1,000-mile mark, even though the bets were on 21 days. 
He needed 74 more miles. By 10.30 p.m. he had 50 miles. He showed amazing determination to continue through the night. He stopped three times to dance a hornpipe. At about 5 a.m. he reached 1,000 miles and went one more mile for good measure. He then retired to the Cossack public house amidst the acclamation of the spectators and the roaring of a huge elephant. He was then put on an open carriage pulled by two beautiful black horses decorated with, quote, leaves of laurel and blue ribbon. His wife and oldest son went along as they rode through Rochester and other nearby towns. A marine band attended them playing, See the Conquering Hero Comes. They then returned to the Cossack pub to celebrate and rest the remainder of the day. He had become the first known pedestrian to cover 1,000 miles in 20 days. But before John Baker finished his 1,000-mile walk, another pedestrian stepped on a course to join in on the 1,000-mile craze. John Stokes, age 25, from Bristol, took on the 1,000 miles in 20 days challenge for 100 guineas award. He had previously taken up walking long distances to lose weight and to improve his health. Stokes, like the others, teamed up with a local inn, the Crown End of Saltford, England, on a road between Bristol and Bath. The landlord of the inn, Mr. Cartwright, constructed a one-mile gravel walkway course in a field behind the inn. Each day, Stokes planned to start at 6 a.m. and reach 50 miles, but he wasn't required to walk that mileage every day. An immense crowd from the surrounding county greeted Stokes when he reached his 1,000-mile goal. Friends put him in a coach and drove a circular route to be cheered by the crowd. In November 1816, the pedestrian pioneer George Wilson started another attempt to walk 1,000 miles at the garden of the Ship Launch Inn at Hull, England. This time, he attempted to do it in less than 18 days, taking time off on Sundays. Admission of one shilling a day was charged to watch, or four shillings for a week. With two days left, he still had 106 miles to go, and the bets were 4-1 to one against him that day. But he made it. Wilson finished in a record 17 days, 23 hours, 19 minutes. He, quote, concluded his arduous task amidst the cheers of the populace and a torrent of rain. But Wilson later complained very publicly that all he got from the people of Hull was funds only sufficient to pay for his expenses during the 18 days. A newspaper editorial was glad that he didn't get paid very much. It will tend to put an end to such exhibitions. If every idle fellow who chooses to take an extraordinarily long walk is to be paid for his trouble, we should never have an end of such useless exertions, nor of the evils they bring on the indolent and thoughtless who lose their time in witnessing them. In October 1817, a female walker, Esther Crozier, started to attempt 1,000 miles in 20 hours on Croydon Road. As typical of the time, people were amused that there could be women pedestrians, and the papers reported mostly on their appearance and clothes. This heroine is rather of prepossessing appearance, about the middle size, and very effeminate. She wore a brown stuffed gown, colored shawl, white stockings, and tout socks. 
On the third day, she was completely drenched through. Her friends wanted her to change her clothes, but she just pushed on. She was still doing well on the seventh day. There were only a few curious people who stopped to watch, and nothing compared to what the men had received. Neighbors started raising money for her. Unfortunately, on the next day, she resigned her attempt. In 1817, the first known 1,000-mile race was announced. But it wasn't just 1,000 miles. It was planned to be 2,000 miles in 42 days. The contestants were Rochester pedestrian John Baker and Josiah Eaton, a 46-year-old baker from Woodford, England. The event took place in an open area called Wormwood Scrubs, used to exercise cavalry horses. The winner would get 100 guineas. They each would walk on quarter-mile out-and-back courses that were parallel, 20 yards apart. The rules agreed to, acceptable to the local authorities, was that the men would walk only between 3 a.m. and 11 p.m. After seven days, both had passed 300 miles and Baker had a seven-mile lead. They reached 1,000 miles on the 21st day with Baker 13 miles in the lead, a very close race. Baker kept to a strategy to stay ahead but keep it close, probably for betting purposes. On some rainy days, the course became impossible for them to walk very long because of deep puddles. The Duke of York and other persons of distinction came to watch and the common people came in huge numbers. The largest crowd came on the 38th day. A nearby canal was choked with boats. In one day, 2,200 gallons of beer were sold at the pub. It was estimated that about 50,000 people came to watch on that Saturday as Baker maintained a nine-mile lead. With a couple days to go, Baker became ill due to smoking an extra pipe, allowing Eaton to catch up a little. In the end, Baker came away with the win, reaching 2,000 miles in 41 days, 21 hours, and 7 minutes with nearly a 10-mile lead. Eaton also squeaked under 42 days with just 10 minutes to spare. With all the attention brought to Wormwood Scrubs, promoters didn't want to see the crowds go away. In the days following the 2,000-mile race, others came on the course trying to achieve hundreds of miles walking backwards. What? Darby Stevens, age 25, started to walk backwards on July 11, 1817. He had the aid of a rope stretched on the course, which he could grab to keep his balance. He succeeded in walking 500 miles backwards in 20 days. The next day, Daniel Crisp of Paddington took his place without the aid of a rope and walked 280 miles backwards in only seven days. A newspaper editorialized, quote, We have reason to believe that the idle scene of walking backwards, which continues to disgrace even Wormwood Scrubs, is encouraged for the very worst purposes, and the public disgust will be still more excited when we state that it is meant to continue these vicious scenes throughout the whole of the summer. Another of these reprehensible matches is already determined upon. John Phipps Townsend was born in 1792. He was trying to find supporters for him to walk 1,000 miles in 18 days. That is nothing new, but he wanted to perform it with 500 miles backwards and 500 miles forwards. 
His very unusual attempt started on August 21st, 1822. Along the way, he was cranky with two of his timekeepers and was very difficult to wake up during the night. After six days, he had completed 327 miles. He was much fatigued from rain, which had fell in torrents the night before. Spectators were amazed. His strength and agility in walking backwards astonished everyone. By day 13, he had reached 715 miles, but he was 17 miles behind schedule. It was reported, quote, his ankles are much swelled and is much oppressed in walking backwards, having fallen of nearly a mile an hour. He walked with a stick, which prevented his hands from swelling. He successfully completed 1,000 miles with 12 minutes to spare. It was said, this feat may be pronounced one of the most arduous in the annals of walking. The 1,000-mile quest came to America in October 1830. Newsom, a pedestrian from England, took on a wager of $1,000 to walk 1,000 miles in 18 days at the public gardens of Philadelphia. He was successful. In 1868, Fred W. Simons, a 24-year-old law school student at University of Wisconsin, was a new walking sensation. He went to Chicago where three men, promising to pay him a total of $3,000 if he could walk 1,000 miles in less than 22 days. Simons only trained for 15 days but took on the challenge. At Hessler's Garden at La Crosse, Wisconsin, he reached 1,100 miles in 20.5 days. He earned a bonus of doing 100 of those miles in 19 hours, 45 minutes. To earn the bonus, he had needed to break 24 hours. They just really didn't know what could be accomplished. At the end of 1877, Edward Payson Weston, the famous American pedestrian of New York, was in Great Britain and took on a 1,000-mile challenge to reach 1,000 miles in 400 hours, or 16.7 days, which would be close to the fastest known time. A balcony was built for Mrs. Weston and her family to watch his progress. It was draped with stars and stripes. At the start of the 16th day, at 5 a.m., he still had about 64 miles to go. By 7 o'clock p.m., he only had 15 miles to go, and he reached 1,000 miles at 10.41 p.m. His finish time was a new world best of 16 days, 15 hours, 41 seconds. It was said, quote, He accomplished the feat with great ease and appeared fresher at the finish than he did on the onset. In 1890, the famous American pedestrian champion Daniel O'Leary and James T. Lowry of Waco, Texas raced 1,000 miles on a track at the Oak Cliff Baseball Park in Dallas. By day five, Lowry led 372 to 356. It was said that Lowry was in better condition than the champion, but O'Leary had amazing grit and endurance. On the seventh day, O'Leary's feet were in bad condition, and he was suffering from a sore heel and sore toe. In the waning days, it was close. O'Leary held an 858 to 855 lead, and both men had sore feet, and the long struggle was taking its toll. Lowry won in 15 days, beating Weston's world-best mark, but his exact time is unknown. By the turn of the century into the 1900s, Walking or running 1,000 miles in the fastest time possible disappeared. 1,000-mile Barclay challenges were still conducted. Stay tuned for their bizarre story in episode 18. Stunt artists attempted a few 1,000-mile stunts to get attention. 
1926, George Hassler Johnston of New York, the hunger hiker, attempted walking 1,000 miles between Chicago and New York City for 1,000 miles in 30 days without eating any food. <laughs> I am hungry. He would only drink about two gallons of mineral water per day. A doctor traveled with him along with an experienced walker to pace him. A friend wrote, quote, The walk carried him over hills and valleys, through the wind and rain, and the summer's heat, and through crowds that flocked along the way. Handshaking, interviews, posing for pictures, and making short health talks consumed almost as much of his energy as the walking. After 20 days and 577.8 miles, he had climbed to the top of the Allegheny Mountains in Pennsylvania. He had lost nearly 38 pounds and weighed only 120 pounds. His feet had shrunk three sizes. One outlet news commented, quote, If there is any point to be gained by the completion of his journey, we hope he makes it. But so far, as we can learn, the hiker is putting his body on the verge of a scrap heap. At the top of the mountain range, he was so weak that he gave up the attempt. In 1933, a strange article appeared in newspapers across the country entitled, Afghanistan's Pessimist Sent on Long Hike. It read, There is no censorship in Afghanistan, but the Nader Shah has found an effective method of dealing with people who circulate false reports. Three scaremongers were ordered to take a 1,000-mile walk around the country under escort to observe conditions. Playcards describing the reasons for their journey were hung around their necks. <laughs> oh, boy. In 1935, Julius Slade, age 37, walked 1,000 miles for $200, pushing a wheelbarrow from Mississippi to Chicago in 30 days. He was a former baseball coach and left with just 35 cents in his pocket. He finished with 75 cents. In 1947, Bert Cousins, age 27, of Essex, England, walked and ran 1,000 miles in 333 hours in less than 14 days on the Romford Stadium track. It was reported, quote, At times he had rapid pace setters, the greyhounds that chased the mechanical rabbit almost nightly on the dog track. He ate only lean meat sandwiches and a few apples. He drank buckets of tea and smoked hundreds of cigarettes. And thus ends the crazy stories of fast 1,000-mile walks before the modern era of ultra-running. Stay tuned for episode 18. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra-Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs> <laughs>